Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. In this first episode, we'll be discussing the female representation in the Netflix-turned-pop-TV and then CBS television series, One Day at a Time. As part of that discussion, we will be taking a look at current Latinx debates that are connected to the show. We will then analyze the three central female characters in the show, Lydia, Penelope, and Elena, as well as consider the importance of female Cuban-American showrunner Gloria calderon Kellett on the creation and execution of the show. Finally, we'll wrap up with a few recommendations of other Latinx television shows that highlight female characters. Let's get started. All right, so let's let's start out with some current Latinx debates, right? Especially what I want what I want to dig into first is Latinx and Afro Latinx representation on television, just in general, not even in this show. Mm -hmm. Latinx actors currently make up approximately eight percent of series regular and recurring roles in scripted network television. Yet they account for at least 18% of the U.S. population. Afro-Latinx actors in television are even fewer, at least in explicitly Afro-Latinx roles. Oftentimes, Afro-Latinx characters are forced into one category or the other by showrunners, something that is largely dictated by how dark their skin is. We see some changes in this with actors such as Rosario Dawson, Judy Reyes, and Gina Torres, who have recently played characters who were coded as Afro-Latinx as well. I think I remember reading somewhere that, that Gina Torres insists on it now, but I don't remember where I saw that. But I think it was an interview with her where she's like, no, I want to make sure that both my Afro and my Latinidad <laughs> shows through, right? That, that I am both, I am that together so the the conversation definitely happening right uh actors are like using their platform to enter into these debates so that's yeah something that we want to explore today yeah honestly when it comes to latinx representation in television network shows versus streaming is also a big thing there aren't any full latinx cast shows on network television at least as of 2020 uh, there was there was one on abc but i'm talking your abc cbs nbc fox and maybe the cw i don't know yeah mainstream television right the, the television that people can get with an antenna mm -hmm. so this means that our latinx centric shows are all on streaming read paid services this does a disservice to audiences who may not have access to these platforms And it's one of the reasons why Calderon Kellett tried so hard to get one day at a time onto network or antenna-accessible television. But time and again, we see the struggle. Many shows throughout the years have only lasted one season or sometimes less. At, probably the biggest exception to this was the George Lopez show back in the early 2000s. 
but even that was relatively short-lived. A recent example of a show that was cut short would be ABC's The Baker and the Beauty, which was canceled after only nine episodes. And it, perhaps it was partially due to COVID and filming restrictions, but obviously was also connected to uh, low ratings. Or what they understand by low ratings. Uh, that's an excellent point. <laughs> Another uh, important debate around this show happened uh, during early summer uh, with actor Rita Moreno. Yeah, in early summer, she participated, she got involved in a debate surrounding Afro-Latinx representation in U.S. media made by Latinos. Yeah, during an appearance on The Late Show with Steve, uh, Stephen Colbert, Moreno dismissed the criticism around the lack of Afro-Latino, Latina, Latinx characters in the film In the Heights, based on Lin-Manuel Miranda and Kiara Alegría's play of the same title. Uh, Moreno's take was, and I'm going to quote her, can you just wait a while and leave it alone? There's a lot of people who are Puerto Rican, who are also from Guatemala, who are also dark and also fair. We're all colors in Puerto Rico. This is how it is. It would have been so nice if they hadn't come up with that and left it alone just for now. And I'm going to end the <laughs> quote there. I, yep. I, I have to comment before you move on. I mean, yep. first of all, we're talking about, you know, Washington Heights which is not just a Puerto Rican neighborhood. It's also a Mexican, Dominican, very heavily Dominican neighborhood. And when you actually go to Washington Heights, you're going to see a lot more Afro-Latinx folks than not. Definitely. So we can consider Washington Heights a black neighborhood, right? yeah. Afro-diasporic black neighborhood. Definitely. And, and this idea of just leave it alone just for now is like, shut up and accept what you've got and just be happy there's a little crumb and and i don't think that's the right answer i don't think that's the right approach <laughs> yeah and people reacted to her comments on on colbert right there was a heated social media backlash to the film first but then to moreno defending the film and defending uh limanuel and defending the the casting and also dismissing yeah the the criticism around the film and what happened was that uh, uh, right away, the next day, Moreno decided to offer a public uh, apology, right? And, and I'm going to quote her again. She said, yeah, or she wrote, I'm incredibly disappointed with myself while making a statement in defense of Lin-Manuel Miranda on the Colbert show last night. I was clearly dismissive of black life that matter in our Latin community. It is so easy to forget how celebration for some is a lament for others. Okay. Right? All right. I mean, at least she didn't double down. I, I don't say that it excuses what she said, but I will say at least not doubling down on it, it gives a little bit of service. And we are talking about a woman in her 90s, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think. Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, 89. Her. I think 89? like she's 89. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know. I think, like, beyond this specific debate about in the highs that has been going on for months now, 
And uh, there has been many clever reactions to to In the Heights. Yeah, a lot of think pieces, a lot of tweets, yeah, from many people. Mm -hmm. I think it is interesting to bring this uh, Moreno public intervention into today's conversation, not only because she's part of uh, One Day at a Time, but because, yeah, contemporary audiovisual works uh, uh, made by Latinos have failed to account for Afro-Latino topics, stories, and characters. And that's what people were commenting on regarding In the Heights. And we can actually uh, uh, apply yeah, that criticism to One Day at a Time Absolutely. at the same time. Just like in uh, Moreno in real life, One Day at a Time has tried to some extent to address the topic of colorism, mm -hmm. but ends up, at least this is my, my opinion on it, uh, ends up in empty gestures and discourses. Um, very problematic takes on mestizaje, on brownness versus blackness that we should like talked about today. Yeah. I think like there's a couple of questions that we can ask. Yeah. When considering one day at a time is and other shows and other films uh, that are connected. Yeah. To uh, Latinos, Latinas, Latinx people. And it, and it is how the mestizaje ideology in the Caribbean, in Latin America and the U.S. implies a goal of blanqueamiento and that's something that we see a lot of right that the that idea of blanqueamiento widening uh, it, it's something that is part of the show of one day at a time yeah especially with the character that rita moreno plays yeah mm -hmm. another question is why does it seems that in the construction of latinidad in the media and i'm talking about mainstream media here it is positive to be brown color canela cafe trigueño or off-white, but never black. Yeah, it seems like it's it's not good to be black, but it's good to be light brown. Yeah, and that's something that also takes us to one day at a time because that is very clear in that show. Yeah. yeah? Why is blackness presented as restrictive to African-Americans? Yeah, and... Um, and that's uh, another thing that we see. Yeah, we have black characters in in One Day at a Time, but these black characters are African Americans. They're not Afro Latinos or Afro Latinas or Afro Latinx people, yeah. right? And then uh, when they are, they're light skinned. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Why do mainstream Latinx media and defenders like Moreno continue over and over to erase la Afrodescendencia? And that's something that. If we're thinking about One Day at a Time, if we're thinking about In the Heights, if we're thinking about mainstream film on TV made by or about Latinos, we need to put those questions up front. Yeah? yeah. I believe these questions are key to approach critically all these recent productions, film production, CV production, but also because, yeah, we should think about the real life repercussions of colorism and racism in Latinx communities. Yeah. Puerto Rican political analyst uh, Natasha Alforcer in a Twitter thread responding to Moreno's comments, and I'm going to uh, uh, quote her, including Afro-Latinos is in the height is not about charity or thoughtfulness or even diversity. It's literally about accuracy, yeah. creating an honest historical record. Yeah, this idea of creating a, an honest historical record, I feel like it's very right. on point. If you're calling your film In the Heights and it's about a particular neighborhood that is a black neighborhood, there should be some more black people besides Benny, who is not Latinx either, mm -hmm. right? Benny is African-American. Exactly. Well, what happens also in one day at a time. Exactly. Yeah. 
the way people, and I'm quoting again, right, Natasha Alford, when she, she says, the way people don't see a problem within the high casting is the same way people don't see racism, erasure of Afro-Latinos in real life. We're talking health disparity, economic exclusion, races, beauty standards, microaggression. It's bigger than a movie. And of quote, I'm going to finish the quote there. But in this case, all those things that she mentions apply to uh, one day at a time. Mm -hmm. and uh, But one day at a time as a reflection, right, of real problems within the uh, Latinx, with the different Latinx communities. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, the Alvarez family that we get in one day at a time, considering that Rita Moreno's character Lydia was meant to come over on the Pedro Pond flights, it's not surprising that they themselves are a lighter skinned Cuban American family. But not all Cuban immigrants to the United States are white or light skinned. And that's something that I think gets erased when we only look at the immigration that happened in the aftermath of the Cuban Revolution. Yeah, and another thing that we have to consider that is very connected to the mestiza ideology in the in Latin America is, uh, is this idea of Hispanidad. How, like also in the show, Cubanidad equals Hispanidad, right? Yeah. A Europeanness. Yeah, uh, what uh, Lydia is very much about that. Yeah, precisely. It's about the Spanish language. There's a moment in which the uh, Lydia defines the Cubanidad through the Spanish language, but also that she defends that actually Cubans comes from yeah Spain. From Spain. Uh, so the Afro Cubanidad is completely erased in the show, or, or at least when it is mentioned, is is mentioned as something minor. Right. And I will say that I think they are, uh, when Lydia makes these points, they do take a moment to say, and it's just a moment because it is a sitcom. It's not mm -hmm. long form. But when when she does come out with these, you know, Cubans are from Spain, Penelope does contradict her and say, no, we're of all you know, we are of all colors and so on. They don't have the visual representation to demonstrate that, but she does have that throwaway line. But the idea also of being of all colors usually, and that's what when I talk about mestizaje, is this idea that is very common in Latin America, that we are of all colors, we're a mix of many cultures and people. But usually what is behind that ideology that is very, again, is very common, not only in Cuba, in the Caribbean, in Latin America, and the U.S. as well, is this idea, but yeah, mestizaje is good as long as you are not closer to blackness, right? <laughs> And that's and we what we're talking that. about. Yeah, we, we need, need to, to, to that. unpack that in, in the show, but also in, 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 in real society, life. in yes. real life, definitely. Yeah. So with those concerns, let's go into it. Yeah, let's unpack one day at a time. All right, so let's give a little bit of background on the show for those who might not be very familiar with it. One Day at a Time is a reboot of the Norman Lear series of the same name. The original series ran on CBS from 1975 to 1984. It, the followed of a white mother and her two daughters. There was no grandmother in that one, but there was the repairman landlord guy mm -hmm. <laughs> in that. The new series follows three generations of the same Cuban-American family living in the same house. A newly divorced former military mother, her teenage daughter, tween son, and her, quote, old school mother, right? Meaning that she is hyper-traditional. Very exaggerated. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, season one follows the story of Penelope as a single parent, but really focuses quite a bit on Elena, the daughter's coming out story. Season two covers the topic of uh, immigration and citizenship through uh, different instances regarding Lydia and through uh, Snyder, the, the uh, landlord, but also touches upon a little bit about colorism, racism, uh, nativism, and uh, white supremacy, right? Yes. And on a daily basis, on how it happens on a daily basis. All very timely topics for 2018 when the season was released. Mm-hmm. Season three really dives into the relationships between and among family members, as well as romantic relationships. So we have, you know, Penelope sort of going through different men that she's dated. We have Elena's relationship sort of flushing itself out. But uh, we also see some of the ways in which the, the relationships among the family members have developed, you know, the the brother-sister relationship between Elena and Alex and, you know, what it is for communication among family members, right? Lydia doesn't communicate to Penelope. Penelope learns to internalize everything. Her children don't realize the struggles that she's going through. So it is about communication as well. Yeah. Season four was a truncated season. It was cut short by COVID-19, as many things in (laughs) in our life, right? It only had six episodes and was canceled after after being uh, passed up by CVS. And it's actually difficult to, to, to watch right now, right? Yeah, I think it's on Paramount is because... It was the first three seasons were a Netflix show. Then the it got canceled by Netflix and p- picked up by Pop TV, which was a cable channel. The first six episodes aired there, plus one animated episode that they did during COVID. And then Pop TV decided to cancel it, and CBS took it up, uh, sort of tentatively. They re-aired the episodes on CBS at one point over the course of six weeks and then decided that because of what they considered low viewership, they were going to cancel it. But I think it's really difficult because how do you ask an audience to come into season four of a show and just start watching knowing there are only six episodes? <laughs> you know, if if people didn't have access to Netflix and hadn't watched the first three seasons, they're not being introduced to these characters in the same way we were when we watched the pilot episode. So I think that complicated things for it being picked up and continued. And we see with this, we see also like the very common way that Latinx shows in general uh, get dismissed yeah, by these big corporation, media corporations. Yeah, I, I know that's one of those things that Calderon Kellett has spoken multiple times about this idea of the Latinx representation on network television. And that's always been her goal, but it's a lot more difficult when the people at the head of these companies are mostly white men. <laughs> it seems that it was better for them to be at Netflix than, uh, than the... Yeah, but yeah. they struggled there as well because I don't think Netflix really promoted them in the same way that they did shows such as Stranger Things and you know even back to their original House of Cards, which was their first television show. Yeah. Canceled for justifiable reasons. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we dig into the characters first? So we'll go in um, age order, generational order. We'll start with Lydia, who is the abuela of Mm -hmm. the family. And 
let's let's dig into her a little bit. Well, I think Rita Moreno is a fantastic performer, and in this show, she proves to be a, a great comedian. <laughs> and she's like, uh, she has the charisma, and, and we see that uh, uh, in in Espanol we say tiene tabla. Yeah, we see that mm -hmm. tabla, right? We see that she has the experience to to be like a, a very potent presence uh, in any production, right? And sure. so it's a pleasure to see Rita Moreno, eighty now an eighty nine years old actress, an actress potente with a long with a long history with an EGOT right? yeah <laughs> and doing an yeah doing a, a very energetic performance and it's uh so but having said that right and this is uh, this is something that I feel it's connected yeah to writing but it seems also that in a way it is very uh with be uh with uh Rita Moreno as a person too it seems right it's this idea of uh Lydia as a very Uh, or presented as a very stereotypical uh, grandmother, as a very stereotypical abuela, right? And what we have here is also and, uh, things that I have identified while watching the show is like these uh, shallow signifiers of Cubanidad, but also Latinidad. And I feel yeah. like that's something that we can talk more uh, later on is this idea how Cubanidad here is it's actually more Latinidad or or at least it's presented more as Latinidad than Cubanidad, right? Yeah. But nonetheless, right, there's like a, an idea of, I feel like the show in many ways feels like it's uh, checking boxes, yeah? Trying yeah, to make sure that they cover like uh, different things that you understand by Cubanidad, uh, such as the exaggerated accent, this idea of being passionate, Right, Lydia is this old school Cuban, so does she is passionate, right? Uh, she's a diva. It seems like they're saying that all Cubans are divas, all Cubans are uh, these passionate people. When we have the flashback with uh, Lydia's husband, he seems also, he's like a, a, a galan, right? Yeah. What would we say, a galan? He definitely falls under a stereotype that we don't we don't get to explore simply because he is dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. But when he appears, we see that it's also like this idea of the Latino as a, as a, as spicy, right? As, right. as a very sensual and sexualized person, right? We also have like, Things like the, the the script is from time to time try to like give you a hint of Cubani, uh, of Cubania by adding words like azúcar that of course is a reference yeah to the motto of Celia Cruz right. the salsa the very important salsa singer from Cuba. Uh, we also have moments of uh, the characters dancing salsa and rumba, but it's a lazy performance it's like they need to be doing that because they feel that latinos or cubans are supposed to be dancing salsa in some way <laughs> or at some point but we see that there's a it's a very lazy performance right now these people are not really dancing salsa and when you see like real dance salsa dancers well yeah these but they're just people in are not doing room. that <laughs> they're just in their living room <laughs> i feel like yeah <laughs> i feel that they could have done better at Uh, at choreographing these moments, right? There's slight reference to to Santeria and the Afri Afro heritage in Cuba and the uh, uh, Cuban diaspora, of course, but they're like minors, like kind of like uh, in passing, right? Nothing too too deep or nothing to take very seriously within their representation of Cubanidad. Um, of course, we have like, uh, although 
they're very anti-castristas and they're very anti-la revolución, right? Uh, we have them with the signifier of the cigar, yeah, that is very connected, yeah, to Fidel yes. Castro and yeah. to los revolucionarios, right? Yeah, that moment when Lydia's on the, the back, the fire escape, studying for her immigration exam and smoking a a cigar, which is presumably a Cuban cigar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And another thing that we uh, uh, already started to talk is this idea of translating Cubanidad as Hispanidad. So we have moments of, of dancing flamenco, again, very uh, in a very sloppy way, or like kind of like bringing, yeah, she's a dancer. Of course, the character was uh, a dancer, but we see that uh, it's also a dancer is very connected this, to these ideas and aesthetic connected to uh, Spain and, and, and very Earl-centric, right? And we see like something that it's important, and I feel like the character is also in many ways is a spin-off of uh, Moreno's character in West Side Story. And actually, the show does a lot of inside jokes about oh, yeah. that, about Rita Moreno being the the, the actor in West Side Story. Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing. Like what happened in West Side Story is like also like this idea of defining Puerto Ricanidad in the case of West Side Story as Hispanidad and using flamenco as the uh, to like signify Puerto Ricanidad, erasing yeah the Afro diasporic music or Afro Boricua music or in this case Afro Cuban music. And uh, and then we have Catholicism that is also like a, a staple of how Latin America is defined. And that, yeah, yeah, that's in extremely interesting yeah. because you know Cuba, especially after Castro, became a non-Catholic by not to say there aren't Catholics in Cuba, of course, but that it was not a state religion. So the assumption is that all of the Catholics left Cuba with the revolution. And so I think that's part of the the hyper-Catholicism that we see through Lydia. You know, it, it is exaggerated to to an extent, for sure. Yeah. And, but that takes us to the who... who sh Who's the ideal audience, yeah, for this uh, Cuban family? And I feel it's it's trying, yeah, to touch base, yeah, with an anti uh, anti castrista. Get those Miami the, Cubans to watch. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's 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 going there. That that's the ideal audience. Very Cuban as pro U.S. because they're uh, it's it's like saying that Cubans are always pro U.S. or are always pro uh, the U.S. as a paternalistic space that defends them against uh, the ills of communism. And I feel that the show at times signals, right, or points towards uh, perhaps doing, that it's doing a satira, right, that perhaps we could read it as a yeah. satira of an uh, elite criolla venida menos, right, Cuban elite that, yeah, now... Uh, She's been uh, taken down a notch. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it is not clear, yeah, the intentions regarding that type of, uh, of satira is not really clear within the show. Okay, I, I think that's interesting because I, I did find it to be clear, but I don't know what gave me that impression, right? That I, I thought the exaggeratedness of Lydia was quite intentional to draw our attention to the fact that not everyone is that way because they, the other characters are not. The other characters call out some of those behaviors as well on, at times, especially Elena. And so I, I found Lydia's over-exaggerated 
bordering on stereotypical character, which I'm going to get into in a moment, quite, quite intentional, right? And what I want to draw attention to first is this idea that stereotypes are not always a negative thing. We oftentimes hear, oh, don't stereotype this, or this is so stereotypical. And it comes across as negative. I personally like the way Frederick Luis Alama and Christopher Gonzalez put it in their book, Real Latinxes. That's R-E-E-L, Latinxes. They said, stereotypes as a construct are not evil or harmful as a storytelling device. Sometimes in storytelling, filmic or otherwise, the storyteller doesn't have the time or space for full nuanced characterization. However, I think it's important to note that later on, on the same page of the book, they remind us that, quote, an identity group must be allowed to be more than the sum total of a stereotype. And that's the problem with Lydia, I feel. that it's. Uh, I feel like in many ways it's a sum of all these stereotypes. She is, and if she were alone on this show, it would be a disaster, right? But in contrast with the other characters... I think we're able to to develop that a little bit. So I think, you know, sure, Lydia does exhibit many stereotype characteristics, but they're often used to call attention to these stereotypes and then flip them on their head. Now, we can argue about how well they do that mm -hmm. and how in detail they do that, but there is uh, these... Or how successful is this flipping yeah, of, right. of yes. stereotypes? You know, I, I think an excellent example is when Elena, her granddaughter, comes out to her in season one. It's episode 11, Pride and Prejudice. Elena leaves the room after coming out to Lydia and Lydia's processing this news with Penelope and she goes into this whole speech and, and it touches on a lot of the stereotypes. I know I've had students who have addressed things with like, you know, I my my grandparents are very traditional and it's not just cubans like you said this speaks yep. to latinidad as well mm -hmm. and she's she's processing out loud and she says this is lydia's quote look i'm not going to do the accent because that's wildly inappropriate i'm just going to read it as a quote <laughs> yeah yes please <laughs> <laughs> look i know you're cool with this but you have to understand i'm a religious woman and i'm sorry but i have a problem with elena being gay it goes against god Although God did make us in his image, and God doesn't make mistakes. And when it comes to the gays, the Pope did say, who am I to judge? And the Pope represents God. So what? Am I going to go against the Pope and God? Who the hell do I think I am? Okay, okay, I'm good. And it's just one example, but it, it sort of addresses this like, oh, my grandparents are hyper-Catholic, so they're automatically going to dismiss this. And it, it allows her this moment to process through how her Catholicism and Elena's identity can coexist and, uh, and actually even be compatible. Yeah, she's also like uh, when, uh, uh, and this is something we will talk with when we talk about the mom, Penelope, right? Uh, but she's against uh, Penelope going to therapy. And we see that there's like moments in which she actually understand, right? There's an episode that actually she understand that uh, Penelope needs therapy and is doing good things to her, right? So we see that uh, at times, yeah, uh, there's moments in which, and I, actually I think those are, uh, are moments that are very rich. And I wish mm -hmm. the show had more of those moments, right? Of how of, of actually flipping those stereotypes or people who actually hold like very strict or uh, conservative stance at times could reflect or think differently, 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the thinking process yeah. is always evolving in all of us, right? <laughs> so acknowledging that I feel is very important and the show does that from time to time. And I think those are the very powerful moments of, of the show. And I, I do feel like, and I know you weren't able to finish the entirety of the show, but I do feel like there's a lot of those, at least on the individual level, uh, among family members in that third season where they they do come across, uh, they are able to process through some of those moments a little more deeply. Like you said, Lydia accepting uh, Penelope's attendance in therapy and everything. We, we see a little bit more of that even in season three as well. Yeah. I only got to uh, season two. That's yeah, I fair. watched the. Uh, <laughs> I only watched like season one and season two. Full disclosure. <laughs> but yeah, uh, another moment that I feel like that is very connected to this idea of stereotype, and that takes us back to that discussion we were having about colorism, about mestizaje, right? Is this? There's one scene. Yeah, in which Lydia uh, defines Cubanidad as Hispanidad. Yeah, uh, and 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 it's very interesting because uh, Rita Moreno had played in the past characters like that, right? In in the film, uh, 1994 film, I like it like that. Uh, Lydia plays also a mother-in-law, right? La mamá del protagonista, right? And uh, another abuela, right? In 1994, and and in that show. Uh, the character's anti-blackness is very clear and also she defines, yeah, in that case, like she's playing a Puerto Rican character. So she's also like, uh, it's pretty much the almost the same dialogue she defines. In that case, she's defining Puerto Ricanidad as Hispanidad, that we're descendants of people from Spain, right? And in this case, we're descendants of people from Spain, but we're Cubans. In the other one, we're Puerto Ricans. Uh, but in both cases, right, it's like this idea that Puerto Rican culture or Cuban culture culture is it's uh solely right hispana hispana as in from spain as in from europe right as in white too because this idea of hispanidad is very connected to el blanqueamiento right of la cultura yeah and and you you mentioned that like in a lot of the the relationships and stuff that they are dating white people or lighter skinned people i mean elena's significant other is white penelope does date another latinx guy but he's very white like almost if he hadn't if they hadn't drawn attention to his latinidad very white passing and ends up with a white character at the end of the series yeah it seems like the the show kind of like the if you see like many episodes the the uh, and this is, of course, uh, I feel like uh, to talk about Puerto Ricanidad or Cubanidad or Latinidad as uh, Hispanidad, as equal to Hispanidad. It's like uh, you are getting into the mestizaje ideology that says that to be light brown, yeah, it's good, right? It's celebrated. And for example, uh, Lydia, the character, yeah, celebrates Papito all the time and and, and, and she likes the uh, uh, the caramel color skin right. and, and, and all that, but blackness again is rejected or again or ignored uh, or uh very like something very minor that is mentioned or or, or referenced in mm-hmm. a very like light way let's not get into that way right <laughs> and and you know like you said full disclaimer but i know you did look this up uh, but alex's girlfriend in the fourth season nora is afro-puerto mm-hmm. rican and yeah. her family we meet her parents who are also 
uh, obviously also both Afro Puerto Rican. Um, mm-hmm. Although I guess they don't both have to be, but they they are. So we see these attempts, but maybe it's a little too little too late, and you know. Yeah, yeah, Nora. If you if Nora uh, seems to be a light skinned Afro Puerto Rican, so again, like colorism is is playing a, a a part here. And as you were also saying, like every time there's a relación romántica, right? All the characters are trying uh, uh, consciously or unconsciously to uh, what they say, mejorar la raza en español, bettering yeah. the race. Yeah, Oof. and when you better the race is when you marry white or you get, yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's or, problematic. <laughs> that's very problematic. And although I don't feel that, that the show, I'm not saying that the show is explicitly using this as a, as, as an, an ideology or, some, or presenting this as something to emulate, it's part of the show and it's part also of issues of representation that have been happening in film and tv not only latino film but also like everywhere right and yeah. in the and all over the world right there's like colorism and uh tv is one of those mediums in which like colorism is very clear right there's yes, many I mean, examples go to the it, telenovelas from uh, many latin american countries and you're oh, gonna definitely. see it there as telenovelas well. are the <laughs> they're probably the worst <laughs> yeah <laughs> in telenovelas everybody's white todo el mundo son blanquitos y blanquitas yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> well Let's talk about Penelope for a little bit now. She is a character who comes in and she has sort of what I would consider four main identities or roles that she plays in the show. And they intersect and overlap with one another, of course. But this this intersection of them is what provides us with a character who is well-developed and relatable to people on different levels, right? You may not connect with every aspect of her, but if you are a Latina mother you may find one aspect or two that you connect with. By making her complex, she's m- you're more easily able to identify. Seeing this through a female character is another form of representation that's less common in television, especially Latinx television. We don't when we think about Latinx characters on more ensemble shows or when they're a side character, it's a lot more stereotypical, right? You know, playing the the drug dealer or the maid or the the like modern family, right? The spicy Latina or yeah. the <laughs> sensual characters that it's a uh, temptation, pe- temptation, yeah, la tentación the of the usually a white protagonist. That that's usually like one of the yeah. And Penelope doesn't not have that sensualidad, right? She absolutely evokes this in moments, but... But it's more complex than that. It's yes. a, a better built and uh, character than Lydia, I feel. Yes. Penelope as a mother, right? She The series starts and she's a newly single mother trying to figure out the best way to navigate her new life. And she's struggling with an internal conflict on this decision, how it will affect her, and we're talking about as an individual, how it will affect her emotionally and financially. That doesn't even touch upon how it will affect the other members of her family. Her mother, Lydia's attitude towards divorce plays an important role in how Penelope deals with her situation and whether or not this decision is right for her children. Yeah, as a conservative character, she's against divorce, right? Yes. Or separating from your uh, significant other. <laughs> she literally says in the first episode, we are Cuban. We don't get divorced. We die. Yeah. This idea that you have to suffer to maintain this this relationship, 
right? Uh, this causes a conflict in her decision. And there is this one point where she contemplates getting back with the father of her children, but uh, it doesn't happen. Ultimately, she's able to recognize that her decision is, in fact, the best for her and her children. Now, Penelope is also a nurse. She, she's a nurse and she's a veteran. And th this is where we're going to see some overlap here. She is suffering from PTSD. She also has anxiety and depression. And she knows she needs to take medication for her mental health. She tell this this moment. I don't know. To me, it is kind of funny. I, I definitely crack up here. But she tells her boss, Dr. Berkowitz, the doctor whose office she works at, that as a nurse, she understands that she needs help and that she would encourage her patients to take the medication and seek therapy. But as a Cuban, she says, I will suffer in silence. Of course, Dr. Berkowitz comes back with a, a silent Cuban. I'd love to see one of those, right? <laughs> you know, just for, for the laughs. But there is this element is like, I need to suffer, right? This idea that you have to suffer through this and that's how you're a a strong individual really comes through. Yeah, there's a that definitely the show like touches upon the issue of accepting mental health therapy and accepting that you have mental health issues that you are dealing with your mental health and many times the best way is through therapy but also medication if that right. is the case yeah and it is important to right to understand or at least explore that option trying right? to dismantle the stigma against these mm -hmm. ideas now as far as how penelope being a nurse uh, in affects her family in season three she decides to go back to school to become a nurse practitioner And this decision is one she struggles with as it pertains to her family because it puts her under greater stress and she struggles with the classes. And there's this idea of like, I have to prove to my family that I can do it all, right? Mm. Which, of course, is exacerbated by the fact that she is a single mother and has uh, more on her plate than she would if she had a partner. Ultimately, she decides to push through it because it will not only be a positive example for her children, but it will help her better support her family. And it's what she loves. You know, she enjoys being a nurse. And if she can take that to the next level, she's going to do it. Yeah, good things regarding the, this topic and this uh, situation, this specific situation that you are referring to, is that also the children support her yeah, and show that support very like openly. Yes. And that also changes Yeah, what we were talking about, like Lydia at times. Yeah. And those are the moments that I appreciate more when, uh, with the character of Lydia. It's like uh, at times like she's allows herself to change her views on things, yes, right? It and, allows uh, for growth. But uh, many times it comes because the new generation is like proposing something new and proposing that actually that this is something that worked for us and this is something that is helping us coping, but also survi uh, surviving, but also being uh, united as a family. And it helps the children see that when they have these issues, that they can come to her. Uh, this is a big thing in season three when Elena is going through her own issues with anxiety, but she doesn't know who to talk to because she doesn't even know that her mother is dealing with the same thing. Now, Penelope is a veteran. Again, this sort of ties in with her mental health because... Well, again, none of these things are exclusive of one another. You can't compartmentalize them like that. <laughs> Penelope resists attending therapy, you know, and, and we talked about Lydia's role in that. But 
she's only convinced to go to therapy to do this one thing for herself through the help of her friend and fellow veteran, Jill, right? She meets this this woman who says, hey, I'm doing this thing and it's helping me. Mm-hmm. But while she's at her first session, she explains how she lied to her family, telling them that she was going on a date. She'd rather tell her family, lie, lie to her family and say she's going on a date, which they weren't really open to at that point, rather than admitting to attending therapy. And she says, again, going back to this this Cuban yeah, this, this uh, Cubanes, Cubanes as, as, as una identidad conservadora. Yeah. Right? She says, I'm Cuban. We don't really do therapy. Yeah. Like, mm. But again, I, I know I've had students mention this to me before, that there is a stigma against therapy in their families as well, and whether they're yeah. Cuban or not. Yeah, students have mentioned that as well, right? It seems like it's very... Uh, Toughen up and... yeah. Yeah, you can in, get through in, it. In Caribbean communities, Latin American communities. Yeah. yeah. Although maybe if we examine, for instance, like in Argentina, therapy is very generalized. Yeah. Mm. So it's like that. Like when we talk about Latinidad, it's important. Yeah. That we don't put everybody on the same place. And the case of Argentina is very interesting because therapia, la terapia is very, it's something that people are really willing yeah, to be in therapy. That's fantastic. Right? And yeah. and I think a big part of it too is not just the willingness, but the accessibility to it. So Definitely. If they have that it available... it's a, also, we need to talk about issues of accessibility. Yeah. It's not always that people are conservative or are against therapy. It's that many times they don't have access to mm-hmm. therapy or there's not enough Boricua therapists or Cuban therapists, right? Or Dominican yes. therapists. So therapist they feel who... comfortable yeah, talking to this person. Yeah, right? you want so a therapist it's... that can understand where you're coming from. Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned again Lydia's role in this, Penelope's therapy and everything, right? She tells, when when she learns about Penelope's therapy, she's, she's like, therapy is for the locos, right? That yeah. is a... Uh, that stigma that i mean just like when someone's coming out and or wants to come out to their family but they hear these sort of negative associations with it 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 gives them hesitancy to come out i think it's similar here for penelope in her own way that she doesn't want to admit to this because it's seen as a weakness Uh, but as you mentioned before it does also provide lydia this opportunity to learn the ways in which it benefits her daughter. And the children as well, right? The children are also learning about the needs of the mother and also understanding uh, their mother as a, as, a, as a woman, as a, as a human, right? Yes, more uh, than just a mom. Apart from, from them and apart from her role as a mother. Yeah, so those um, moments are really solid in the, in the show. So in regards to Penelope's mental health, I've really touched on a lot about this through talking about her roles as a nurse and a veteran. But the fact that the show provides viewers with a character like Penelope is so important. She she serves as a way to demonstrate to Latinx audiences that dealing with mental health is not just something for white people, which I think when we're talking about Latinx populations in the United States. Yeah. That stigma is very real. Yeah. And, and we talked about it being beneficial to the children and the things, the issues that they're dealing with. This idea that Penelope thinks she has to hide her weaknesses from her children and only show the strong side because that's what her mother did gets broken down when she realizes that her children are actually at a disadvantage by not understanding she relates to them in other ways. 
One thing that I want to uh, mention about, like, I feel like the the show does a great job as presenting therapy as something that is positive uh, for the individual, but also for the family. But there's something in particular about better and mental health that it's not there, that I feel that uh, the show could have addressed it, right? As there's no critique about militarism, and there's no critique about the U.S. military-industrial complex, uh, there's no critique about right U.S. imperialism in the Caribbean or the U.S. neocolonialism in Cuba, yeah? the ongoing blockade, the sanctions, and all of those things are actually like very important when we're addressing yeah, mental health. Yeah, there's a, a part that is very specific to the individual, but there is also social aspects, right? Mm -hmm. And the show at times, like, or it's always like talking about being Cuban, right? But when they talk about being Cuban, it's something superficial, right? This the stereotypical uh, representation of Cubanness that we were talking about before, right? The links between uh, mental health and the social aspect that are connected, yeah, to uh, to the well-being of, of of people from Latin America, from Cuba, uh, or the well-being of veterans, is not really covered, right? It's kind of like erased. The show seems to be saying that the responsibility of accessing mental health falls into the individual, right? Yeah. Well, I uh, mean, that that's very very U.S. American too. Perhaps, yeah. But we see that in the, uh, if we look at uh, Penelope versus her ex-husband, right? Like yeah. we see that Penelope is actually like uh, taking steps toward her well-being and the well-being of her family, her the, her uh, mental health uh, well-being. But then the ex-husband is somebody because of all these prejudices and stereo, uh, stereotypes uh, assigned yeah, to mm -hmm. therapy. He seems to be self-medicating, or at least the, the show presents him like that. So uh, they contrast uh, two members of that couple yeah, through their approach to mental health or through the acceptance or lack of acceptance, uh, acceptance to mental health, mm -hmm. right? But the show never addresses, right, other aspect of veteran life that it's uh, extremely important, yeah, or at least that I feel like it should be key, yeah, when talking about mental health in the specific case of veteran people that is very connected to politics it's very connected to global issues it's very connected to the violence of war yeah. right and to uh imperialism not only u.s imperialism it could be european imperialism right and others right but the show tries to avoid that type of uh, analysis when addressing uh, mental health and i wonder if that's just a like a consequence of being a sitcom and the type of show it is what ways they can get into those issues that are very serious without sort of losing the humor element like what what's the balance on that and i'm not a tv writer so i don't think i could answer that question but it, i think the medium is something that that plays a role in that i think you you shouldn't ignore it uh, but I wonder how deep into it you can get without making it the primary focus. At the same time, sometimes they get very uh, deep. Yeah, for uh, for example, there's one episode in, in which Penelope it's, it's not talks about suicide. 
right? Yeah. And talks about that is very deep, that is very like heavy. That and and they actually go there, and I, I appreciate those moments because they they were willing to get deep into the topic. But I feel like the show is like that. At times they get really deep into this topic and these issues that are and they affecting, pull back. <laughs> and then or, or they pull back, or at times they prefer, especially when they're uh, uh, connected to politics and U.S. politics and U.S. Uh, foreign policy and the history of the U.S. as an empire. The yeah, the show kind of like. Yeah, goes uh, uh, into a different direction. I think I think it's season four, the the season premiere of season four. They have the census guy show up at the house, uh, and it's played by like Ray Romano. But mm-hmm. he shows up, and all he wants to do is take the census. And there's this idea of this paranoia behind giving census information, which I thought was also a great timely topic. Because, you know, there's actually a play, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it's a Mexican play, El Censo, and it is about these I women. I don't know, no, I don't know it, yeah. Yeah, these women working at a, like, sort of a black market seamstresses, and the guy comes to take the census, and they think he's from, like, the IRS, or the equivalent of the IRS and everything, mm-hmm. and they're worried about their business being taken away, and this and that. And it really touches on the fear that many Latinx people have expressed about completing the census because they think there might be a tie to citizenship or something mm-hmm. like that. And and so they, they do. They bring in these, these deeper moments at times, but it's how they can or can't balance them with humor. So, um, you know, and maybe, you know, Gloria calderon Kellett is... Cuban American, but that doesn't mean she's the expert on all Cuban Americans, right? She's telling one story. Yeah, definitely. And it's important to, I feel like this show is important to watch it yeah, from that perspective, that this is one perspective and not all Cuban Americans oh, uh, think the same about politics in Cuba. Not all uh, uh, Cuban Americans feel the same about the U.S. as a host country or as a, con- or as a country that they want to belong to or they decide to live in. Uh, so there's a lot of nuances that I feel like uh, regarding the, the the notion of diaspora and the notion of, of, of Cuban Americans or the notion of Cubans in America, I feel like the show tries to generalize, going back to this idea of the stereotypes, try to generalize or put everybody on the, in, in the same place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially regarding this political uh, aspect of, of, of that identity. Right, and I feel the uh, we should be critical about that. Yeah, when watching this show, it's fair, absolutely. Now, if we're talking about political characters, <laughs> we can get into Elena. Yeah, a let's go bit. to Elena. <laughs> Elena is the uh, the political character, honestly, por excelencia. Yeah. I I look at Elena and I see a lot of myself as a teenager in her, sort of this like gung ho nature that doesn't necessarily have the tools to follow through on a lot of it or the knowledge to follow through on a lot of it. But mm-hmm. um, I think the the main focus with Elena, and it's done to an exaggerated point, even into the third season, she sort of mellows out a bit in the fourth season with drawing attention to it because she's now feeling more comfortable as a lesbian. But, you know, coming out for Elena is difficult, just like coming out for most LGBTQIA plus teens can be difficult. But this added element of the Latinx cultural gender norms has Mm. been shown 
to add to the difficulty of coming out for Latinx queer youth, there's a an interesting study that Alice Fidian Green and others ha- did on Puerto Rican Latina youth coming out. And it's a more of a, a clinical study, but it really does sort of touch on some of these difficulties in coming out. So Elena's recognition of her own sexuality and her subsequent, we can call it successful, coming out to I her family. I feel it's very successful, it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she struggles with the relationship with her father at first, but eventually even he comes around to uh, accepting her. You know, this serves as a layer of support for queer Latinx teens who might be struggling with making their own decision to come out, right? To see that people can be supportive. I think the fact that they started out with her brother overhearing her and her younger brother, like making it solidarity within that generation where you do see Latinx youth a lot more accepting of one another. Their fears come from their parents or their grandparents and that mm-hmm. acceptance. I feel like in terms of writing, this is the plot, the most successful plot line in the show. Yeah, because of all the different uh, nuances that uh, the show presents regarding the topic. And, and because it is a through line, like a lot of other topics they touch on for one episode and then it yeah. disappears. Mm-hmm. So yes, I, I agree. You know, she she has concerns. She's like, what am I going to say to my mom? Like, she's she's on hold with the VA uh, for her mom. And she, they, they say, oh, you should reach out and talk to someone. And she's like, that'll go great. How do I even do that? Hey, mom, I think I might like girls. Like, she's trying to process it herself to this unknown voice and then to her brother and then eventually to her mother and grandmother. Yeah. So I think the concerns that she expresses over whether or not she'll be accepted by her family are relatable to many queer teens. Mm -hmm. But when she considers her her Cubanidad or her Latinidad, whichever, because again, we're we're sort of cross-culturing here, she is even more concerned about coming out, especially to Lydia, because she's a devout Catholic abuela. Yeah. But her acceptance by her family can also help parents who might be struggling with their own children's sexuality. You know, Penelope is loving and accepting of Elena, but she still struggles. And that's very important, this idea that she still struggles to... uh, So there's different degrees of acceptance, right? Again, yeah, this is a moment... uh, Or this is a... a, a, a Within the story of this family, right, throughout many episodes, uh, this is something that the, the that the show does really well at showing, like, different degrees of acceptance, different, the thinking process, the emotional process, the psychic process of, of accepting one another. Not, uh, uh, it's, it's very important how the show does that, right? Especially regarding Elena. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Penelope is... Loving and accepting of Elena, That's, that much is true. But the fact that she's struggling shows she's human. And it allows parents to understand that just because they might not be like A-OK with it when they first learn, it doesn't mean that they can't process through. And it tells the children, the teens who may be coming out, that, hey, give your, give your family some time and they'll get there. They want to get there because they love you. But also Elena needs some some time too, right? We see like it's uh, it's something that also she's like uh, learning to accept herself. She's learning to to understand herself yes. and her desire, right? So it's also that's also very important. So it, it comes, yeah. Everybody, it's in the process of understanding, yeah, queerness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
I want to talk about Latina nerds. Because <laughs> Elena is a nerd. Like, yeah. she is... <laughs> She's a nerd, she's a geek, she's all of those things, you know, in the best possible senses, and sometimes in the not so positive. But I think that's another thing we don't see a lot on television, we don't see a lot in literature. I mean, the first, the, the, the big Latinx nerd character probably that comes to mind for most people might be Oscar Wilde. Um, yeah, probably. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. that's this big one where you're not seeing this sort of machismo in the same manifest itself in the same way anyway i, w I won't say it doesn't exist because that book has <laughs> has a lot going on <laughs> but there is a frequent over sexualization of latina teens in the media especially you know these young women and this sort of results in a perpetuation of stereotypes so elena can break this you know she doesn't care about things like fashion and makeup which you know that doesn't necessarily lead to over-sexualization, but we're starting somewhere. She's a nerd, and she's allowed to embrace that, right? She she lives in a place and a time where she feels comfortable admitting, like, she's a gamer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She goes to comic conventions. She dresses up as Doctor Who. It's like yeah, <laughs> all yeah, of yeah. these things come out here. And I think this is just another way of demonstrating that Latina teens don't fall all under one category, one type. There's not one Latina teen. Yeah. What do you think about her activism? I mean, to me, it struck it struck me as like privileged teenage activism, mm -hmm. right? She wants to be active, an activist. She wants to be really involved, but she doesn't necessarily feel like she she's not personally affected by the things that th those sort of big topics, right? She's not a victim of racism herself. Yeah. She is not, you know, sure. Maybe as a queer youth, but as she's pretty straight passing as yeah. well, if she's not with her partner. So I think her activism, it's like, it's baby activism. She wants to get there. She's taken these steps, but she's, She's not there yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If Lydia is over the top as a character in general, like uh, Elena's activism is also like very uh, over the top as well. It's exaggerated. It, seems, uh, it is presented as an adolescent phase, uh, uh, at times as a pose. It is a comic relief. At times it's unfocused, right? Uh, like for, for for example, one day they are like going to protest against these video games that only have two non-binary characters, <laughs> right? So it's it's very like uh, the, the the joke is always ab about her activism, right? And She's how it's not very it's not something very solid in her identity. It, it's not, and I think I think part of that is growing up, and and that's okay. But it would also be nice to see her, you know discussing a Black Lives Matter protest or the Women's March and things like that. But I think, again, that ties into what you were talking about, like digging into all the historical uh, yeah. I feel like the, uh, there, there was a missed opportunity with that aspect of Elena, this aspect of activism could have led the writers of the show, right, to bring yeah, reference and interaction with the history and current uh, iteration of the of Chicano, Chicana, Chicanx, Central America and Black activist movement in California because the That's show is based in, in, in California and the Southwest in general and the U.S. in general, yeah? 
also through Elena could have been like that was a good entry point that character was a, a good entry point into bringing these systemic problems that I've been like trying to present as, uh, as something that was missing at least for me as an audience I was missing those uh, systemic analysis from the show but because of this constant treatment of activism as a joke or as something in, something that is immature in itself those opportunities were missed. Yeah, it, I, there's definitely stronger things that they could have done with her as an activist, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I think some of her concerns come across as frivolous. Yeah. And it would have been nice to even blend those or like see her transition from, you know, I'm protesting for composting in school or this video game to I'm protesting for the lives of these mm -hmm. individuals or these groups of people. You know, I don't think any television show can be perfect because that's no. the nature of that, that format. And also, uh, as you were saying, it's a sitcom. I understand that the sitcoms, at least like how we understand them, uh, they're presented as something live that you watch. Yeah. Uh, right now, you kind of like stream it and you can binge them and mm -hmm. you, they don't require a lot of uh, esfuerzo from your part. <laughs> exactly. Right? But at times, it's interesting how the show sometimes is really brave in bringing these issues and gets really deep. Yeah, but at times, yeah, uh, yeah, it's just like their brush of all, uh, other issues that also I feel like that were also very important. With Elena, the show had a lot of uh, opportunities, yeah, to address other topics. Yeah, and I I wonder if that reflects sort of the creative side of things, right? Who's mm -hmm. in the writer's room? Who's doing the the? I mean, we we're going to talk about Gloria Calderon Kellett, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. their their writing room was like you know, at least half women, half Latinos or uh, Latinx, there was, they, she did try to get representation in the writing of mm -hmm. these episodes, but because these individuals may be second or third generation or even fourth generation uh, Latinx, that maybe they're not as close to these sort of researchy issues and that yeah. they don't necessarily dig into the Cuban yeah. society, right? Like they, they're not familiar with that. They're familiar with what's happening now in the United States. And so there is a beautiful opportunity to marry those two things, to get take the contemporary issues that, you know, third generation like Elena are dealing with and connecting them to the, the concerns that first generation like uh, Lydia mm -hmm. faced. Yeah, definitely. All right. So, like I said, we talk about Gloria Calderon Kellett. She admits that she wanted to make sure the show resonated with non-Cuban Latinx audiences. I do think it's important to note, though, that she is Cuban-American. So I think that's where a lot of maybe your concerns about this weird line of, like, when is it Cubanidad, when is it Latinidad yeah. sort of yeah. come from, is that she wanted to, she, she wanted to make it accessible for non-Cuban audiences, but her own experiences are as a Cuban-American. So I, I recognize that we're getting a very specific perspective about a very specific group of Latinas, but also at the same time, it's super generalized. How can it be both? Well, watch the show. You'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I do think the references are Cuban, although not Miami Cuban, because the show takes place in Echo Park, Los Angeles. And sometimes they're subtle or just sort of quick in passing. 
but I do I do think they're there. You know, Penelope brings home pastries from Porto's Bakery. That's a Cuban bakery in uh, in L.A. Lydia prepares ropa vieja is a very traditional Cuban dish. Even the opening credits show images from the Pedro Pan flights. Um, and of course, Lydia tells her story about coming over on that flight on one of those flights. So they're not... Most of them are about food. <laughs> Most of them are about like food. Like Cubanidad as food. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> but I, I was looking into the idea, that this idea of why she chose to set the show in Echo Park instead of Miami or other parts of LA. Mm -hmm. um, and it was something that I wasn't familiar with before digging into it, but... Echo Park was originally a very Cuban neighborhood, or originally, like in the 60s, it was a very mm -hmm. Cuban neighborhood. Between 1961 and 1966, over 14,000 exiled Cubans moved to California. And I think a lot of it had to do with the, the population boom in Miami. It was just too much. They needed to <laughs> somewhere mm -hmm. else. And, and they even referred to the neighborhood as Little Havana for a long while. And now it's more predominantly Mexican, but um, or... And starting to verge on gentrified as far as I understand it. But I do think it could have been more explicit to to talk about this choice of the neighborhood, like what, what the neighborhood was like and so on. And yeah, that's not very clear in the uh, the history of the neighborhood, the, uh, like why they're in LA and not in other, like in other spaces that are more associated with the Cuban diaspora. Yeah, right? and honestly... So that's a surprise, and it's something that uh, uh, it's, it's, it's good because it presents another side, uh, or it allows to think about another side of Cubanidad and the Cuban diaspora. But, but again, it's like those those are the things sprinkles. that were missing, yeah, or they were like treated lightly. Yeah, you know? yeah, I mean, I've watched the, th the show through three times probably although some of it in that like background watching yeah 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 <laughs> and i it wasn't until i started digging into it that i that i had any idea so anybody who's from outside the echo park area would you know it's like when shows take place in new york and you're like well how realistic is this right mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. it's the same thing here but i do think some of the bits are over exaggerated uh, and some for good reason some not But I think we can attribute a degree of Latinx authenticity to them. Now, this does not suggest that the family or the actions that they take or the words that they speak are universal from, for all Latinx audiences. Far from it. But it is able to maintain a degree of relatability for audiences. You know, from the use of Spanish, yeah. right? She, she doesn't even translate some of the Spanish. And that's great. Yeah, that's something great about it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Themes of belonging, whether it's in the U.S. or as part of the Latinx community. Right, because Elena doesn't. She gets accused of not being Latina enough because she's yeah. she's very white passing, and lived cultural experiences. You know, audiences are exposed to another Latinx story, mm -hmm. and I think there's an article by Esteban Del Rio and Kristen Moran called "Remaking Television: One Day at a Time's Digital Delivery and Latina O uh, Cultural." specificity and that sort of dives into that that idea a bit more and having a latina showrunner for a show that centers around latinas i mean yes we have alex or papito but <laughs> the the three central es un matriarcado, yeah. <laughs> absolutely absolutely a, a women-led family here yeah you know especially a latina showrunner who identifies as a member of the group of people whose story is being told it, She she tells us, you know, I'm only telling you one story. Mm -hmm. 
But this story contains elements that many Latinas can relate to. And one of the, my favorite stories that I read in an interview with Calderon Kellett, uh, it was an interview with Olga Segura, revolved around the props. And, and again, it, it, it still ties into food. Yeah. <laughs> but Bustelo and yeah. especially Bustelo. Yes. Bustelo appears in many, many shots. But it didn't used to, right? I mean, that's something that we're seeing now in I think even in the the second half of the the 2010s is mm -hmm. where we start seeing that. Calderon Kellett was doing an event and people came up to her and this one woman said, quote, I didn't realize that I needed to see a can of Goya in a cafetera until I saw it. It made me cry. I was so confused. Why am I crying? It's just a cafetera. But I'd never seen it before on screen. So mm. those little things that may seem superficial still are more than they've ever gotten before. They're not enough. We're not mm -hmm, there. Mm -hmm. And and we have to make that clear. It's not like Rita Moreno is saying, like, just be happy with what you got. It's like, yeah. no. But we're that shouldn't be the attitude. Yeah. Right. It's but definitely not... the show is doing, yeah, some some work. Um, it's in the process of yes, it's taking those getting steps to and it's... Uh, a different type of representation. And it's just one example, right? Yeah. I feel the show works better. It could be seen as a show that calls towards uh, prideful, but always. And this is something that the show does over and over. Try to present the Cuban characters as non-menacing and accommodating. And when I say accommodating, I'm talking about the Anglo-white gaze, especially the, the male gaze. Yeah? And we see like Schneider as a character who is always there. So he's always like looking at them and many times appropriating their culture. But it's always kind of like a, a witness of them. So all, there's always a, a white male presence to which they're in some way performing, yeah? The show always tries to appeal and please Anglo-white audiences. I feel like uh, that, that's uh, something about the show. Although, I will mm -hmm. point out one moment. Um, yeah. I think it's in the second season, when they're in the ice cream parlor. Yeah. And they're, like, singing and cheering. And, oh, like, yeah, 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 Blanquita, And some white guy tells them to be quiet. And they're yes. just like, you know what? No, we don't need to just cater to you in this. So, but again, I, I think you're you're onto something where it started. It, mm -hmm. it was a start, but it didn't take it all the way. Yeah, all the male characters, except for the father, tend to be white, the romantic Penelope's romantic. Yeah. In, uh, uh, even when Latinx are very white passing. Yeah. Another thing that I noticed is like the show, although it, it, it uh, uh, keeps repeating its Cubanness, it's very pan Latin or tries to appeal to uh, pan Latin audiences. And that uh, the example of the Bustelo is very clear. Bustelo and Goya are very pan Latin marcas, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, and they're trying to kind of like to. Make sure the the show resonates with other Latino audiences, and that's not bad at all. But I feel like when we, uh, it shouldn't be seen as a show that is actually accurate in terms of representing Cubanidad, because actually I feel it's more successful about trying at least to get elements from different Latino groups. Mm -hmm. And so it actually creates more of an inter-Latino conversation than a, a deep conversation about Cubanidad in the U.S. I feel like it's more about pan-Latinidad in the U.S. as seen from a light 
point of view, Anglo white for Anglo white audiences or audiences that actually had the goal, just like the family of of, of belonging. Yeah, yeah, this idea of the of of Latinos as people who want to belong into the the U.S. So you saying that makes me think that the choice to set it in Echo Park is even more important than setting it in Miami, for example, Probably. because right. Miami is so Cuban. Although maybe in recent years it started, there's there's more of a Puerto Rican presence and everything. But when you think of Miami, you still think of Cubans very specifically, where Echo Park is a little more pan-Latin. Pan-Latin, right. The show is, is concerned with the issue of Cuban-Americans for sure, but uh, but I feel that more so about the issues of Latinos, Latinos, Latinx people. But Latinos, Latinx, and La uh, Latinos and Latinx people... At least in the show, they're presented as people who want to belong, yeah, yeah. To want to to actually fit in, right? It's this idea and of Latinidad. It's a construction of Latinidad of a Latinidad that wants to fit in. It's not a Latinidad that is bringing dissent in any way, or it's uh, as we were talking about, like activism is here. Like it's not something too serious, light. or not something that is explored in depth in any way. It's more like something that it's it's, it's funny. Right. And I think that's something that makes it appeal to or was part of the the idea of, well, let's make sure it appeals to white audiences, too. Yeah. And yeah. for better or for worse. Yeah. And that's we have like a character such as Snyder, like always there. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the intrusive aspect of Snyder, uh, I feel like it's very metaphorical <laughs> of the intentions of the show. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that. All right, so quickly, we want to give you just a few recommendations for other shows, because as we said, One Day at a Time is only telling one story. And there are many Latinx stories out there that can be told. We're, we're not going to sit here and, and recommend every show today, but <laughs> you can look them up. There's a lot more than there were even three, four years ago. Yeah, yeah. so uh, one that uh, I will recommend is The Get Down. Uh, it's a two-season show about the emergence of hip-hop in the Bronx. It is a show that pays a lot of attention to the social historical background of the 70s and the politics of neglect and institutional racism that affected Afro-diasporic and Caribbean communities in the area. The show is also great at showing the interconnections and tensions between hip-hop and disco cultures. Mm. And uh, the main female character is uh, uh, the uh, most of the characters are, are males, but the main female character, Mylene, is an Afro-Puerto Rican independent young woman and disco singer that confronts and resists her patriarchal family, the music industry moguls and Sikhs. Yeah, the main MC and character of the show, his pushy love interest. So mm -hmm. she, she's kind of like, she's always defending herself from all these males that want to control her life. So it's very interesting, uh, her narrative arc within the show. That one just popped up on my Netflix recommend. So it, it will be on the list very shortly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to recommend Hentified. I mean, I, I adore this show. I can't wait till the second season comes out. I think it's soon. There is no date yet, but they have filmed the second season. And in this show, we follow the story of the Morales family. And it focuses heavily on three cousins with the two guys with very <laughs> Anglo names, I guess. <laughs> We've got Eric, Chris, and Anna. And they're chasing their own versions of this so-called American dream. But simultaneously, they're dealing with gentrification in their L.A. neighborhood, which is Boyle Heights. 
It originally started out as a YouTube series and was later picked up and developed through Netflix. You don't need to see the YouTube series to understand the show. I believe they're different main characters, although there are a few crossover characters in there. Uh, it's labeled as a drama comedy, so while there is some laughter, there's also some really heavy content as well, and a heck of a cliffhanger for season one. Yeah. Going back to New York, there's a, a really great show that is called Pose, and it's a groundbreaking drama, or perhaps uh, a melodrama, because mm -hmm. emotions and affectos uh, are always highlighted in it. Yeah, that centers uh, Black, New Yorkian, and Latinx, Avan La Letra, before that term existed, yes. <laughs> uh, queer, non-binary, and trans cultures in 1980s New York during the AIDS crisis. Uh, in a specific, the show portrays the underground ballroom world, uh, the sounds and aesthetics of it, and it uh, contrasts it with, uh, with and against the white male-oriented corporate world. Right? It has the largest cast of transgender actresses to be staring in a series, including the Afro-Boricua protagonist MJ Rodriguez and India Moore of Haitian, Puerto Rican, and Dominican ancestry. And both of them play trans and non-binary Boricua characters. I am adoring this show. I think I have three more episodes to go until I'm caught up, but I... I really enjoy it in the second season even more so because they're digging into, uh, you know, the ACT UP group and that more into the AIDS story. You know, that first episode of the second season where they go to, um, oh, what is the name of that island? But it's, you know, all the AIDS patients who died were buried there when their families didn't accept them. And so they, they really are sort of putting on a lot of that serious history Yeah. along with the the storytelling and and you're right melodrama for sure i don't think there's an episode i haven't cried <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna recommend two last ones and neither of them are really latinx centric shows but there are shows with ensemble casts in which a latinx character is not marginalized to the other characters and that's the babysitters club series uh and superstore now in the babysitters club we have sochi gomez playing dawn And I love this because, so I am a child of the 80s and 90s, and I grew up reading the Babysitter's Club books. And in the books, Dawn is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed California girl, right? So the show gives us a Dawn that is a Latina in a way that works seamlessly with her already established characteristics from the book. You know, she is she is Latina, her, her mother is, even her father, like, they're... The show takes place in Connecticut. So to, to be to put this in a, you know, we're talking about L.A. and we're talking about New York. And like, what about these other places, right, mm -hmm. where where Latinx folks exist? Yeah. In Superstore, we have America Ferreira, who plays Amy, an employee at a big box store in the Midwest. But she's shown as a floor manager who later becomes the store manager. And she does have to face some stereotypical situations. They're written in a way that encourages challenging these stereotypes, like, Her boss, her white manager in the beginning is like, hey, I want you to give out samples of this salsa, wear a sombrero and speak with an accent. And she's like, you know, I don't have an accent. Why are you making me do this performative yeah. aspect? So so while neither of those shows are Latinx centric, they do provide us with characters that that don't get stereotyped. The five, yeah, the, the stereotypes yeah. about uh, Latinos, Latinas.
All right. Well, thanks for joining us for our first full episode. What do you think? Share your thoughts with us. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Latinx Visions. Send us a message or email us at latinxvisions at gmail.com. We'd love to include your thoughts in a future episode. Subscribe to us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. Yes, leave the five-star review because that helps with the algorithms. Yeah, estamos a la escucha, mi gente. Dale, until next time. Bye.